Yeah, we're going to Vegas. I brought costume. Word. Okay, let's do this. Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Tim. Word. Welcome back uh, for another Hang in the Laboratory. Uh, spe- uh, thanks for joining us. And as always, special thanks to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month to help keep this thing going. Uh, it really makes a difference. Uh, if you want to jump in over there, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com and, uh, you know, click the buttons. <laughs> Uh, this week, you heard a third voice. We got a, we got a guest this week. Uh, he's a friend of Brian's from way back uh, named Tim Foad, and he's the chair of the econ department at San Diego State University. Uh, he, you're our first, he's our first economist. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> We've been really excited to talk to an economist. We have lots of questions. <laughs> all right. All right. That's not something I hear every day. But uh, happy to be here. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming on. But first, do you want to talk about? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, working at the university and kind of like, well, you know, what do you actually do all day? <laughs> all right, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think I think my my students have that same question, so to be illuminating for them. Uh, yeah, so I've been at San Diego State since 2006. This is my first year as the chair of the department. Uh, <clears throat> teach courses in development economics, health econ, empirical methods. Uh, macro, a little bit of everything. Uh, most of my research recently has been focused on immigration, uh, the effects of living in an ethnic enclave. Uh, but I start off as an international finance economist looking at uh, movements of money across borders and things like that. So yeah, dabble in a little bit of everything. Very uh, politically hot topics that you're into these days. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of my ideas <laughs> just come from watching the news. So, trying to figure <laughs> out what would be interesting for other people to read and Try to totally. find questions that don't have an answer and doing what I can to answer them. So, you know, it, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting one because I think if somebody's, you know, if, if, if you pressed someone to say, what is the study of economics? They'd be like, I, I don't know what economists no. say. And then they would quote a bunch <laughs> of statistics at you, <laughs> you know, so like it, they play, it, it's, it's an incredibly important uh, sort of branch of science. Yeah, in our and in everyone's life, uh, but I, but like what what like what is it? <laughs> yeah, you, you may hear you may hear economist referenced more than any other branch of science on the news. But you're right; it's kind of like it's not it's not like a sexy discipline in academia. No, I don't, no, I don't think. think anybody would so, ever call people. economist sexy. Uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, so yeah, I mean, economists do a little bit of everything. We've certainly been accused of being academic imperialists, uh, uh, <clears throat> trotting on the, uh, the sort of the, the bailiwicks of other, other disciplines, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, economics at its heart is really just the study of how people make decisions. Uh, we, how do we satisfy our unlimited desires with limited means? And so, you know, that covers a lot of things. Uh, and so you'll find economists working, obviously, in, you know, big macroeconomic forecasting, which is sort of what we think about, but also on health policy, on uh, immigration, which is what I work on myself, mm-hmm. on uh, drug policy. We actually just went to a, uh, a seminar the other day that was looking at uh, the great Australian heroin shortage of uh, 2001. I didn't know there was a heroin shortage, but apparently had a really big impact. Uh, 
big effect on reducing crime rate. So, you know, we look at a little bit of everything. Uh, so there's some really cool stuff going on right now with uh, big data and uh, certainly a lot of, you know, behavioral econ is, is the big hot button right now. So, uh, yeah, you'll find economists everywhere, but because it is so broad, um, I think it often does get misunderstood. And economists disagree on everything. Uh, I think it was uh, Richard or LBJ who said his dream was to have a one-handed economist <laughs> because for every economist, there was uh, one hand to this on the other hand that. So it's yeah. kind of like being a lawyer though, too. Like, like sure. my job as a lawyer is to have the answer to this question be, well, it depends. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, obviously life is complex and nuanced and it seems like these days people want just a yes or no answer right. to everything. So, you know, that's all. It's all of the yes or no answers have been like documented and put on the internet. <laughs> so now everyone, everyone. And sometimes it's yes and no. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Depending on where you go. Uh, so uh, we, it like, I've talked on this podcast before about the advisors and stuff in my company and I have family members who are economists and stuff. And the conversations are always like, they're super interesting, particularly in the context of the business relationship where, you know, I'm working on tech and kind of like automation processes and AI stuff like that. Uh, how frequently the, uh, one prominent economist advisor that we have says, Oh yeah. What you're going to want is this model it won a Nobel prize a few years back. People have been, you know, it's essentially been dominating this particular game theory problem that you have here for the last 30 years. Like it's a really remarkable thing that, you know, uh, economists frequently will frame, I think the study that they do in the mm -hmm. context of saying that it's a, like a, a social science and it is because you're trying to break this stuff down, but you're doing it in, kind of the most scientific way possible. And you end up with these things where you're like, well, we can cite trend data now that is like this problem of how do four people negotiate the outcome of a situation has been kind of optimized <laughs> to an extent uh, and tested, which is a really interesting yeah. answer that, you know, and I immediately go, I got another book I got to read now. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, we, we definitely try to be as scientific as possible. The, the problem we run into is generally we don't have nice, clean experimental data. So, you know, we're not, you know, biologists or natural science that can run randomized control trial generally. So a lot of the statistical techniques that we've developed have been to deal with the fact that, you know, life is messy and the data that we have is observational rather than experimental. And so trying to figure out some kind of causal effect that sort of proves or disproves a theory uh, can be a challenge. And so that's why most economists are essentially statisticians at heart. So you know, by necessity, had to, had to come up with some of these techniques to really get it at the heart of the issues that we're looking at. Uh, and it gets us back to something Brian says all the time, which when I say what's one course everyone should take that they probably don't, it's statistics. Oh, yeah. It should be required math yeah, curriculum. Probably. They probably affect our lives affect our lives more than anything yeah. else <laughs> at least in our media I mean, it's certainly it's certainly front the front of every conversation now right yeah. everybody is aware that decisions should be getting made based on some some sort right. of research and and looking at trends and they're referenced in the news but you go even slightly below the surface with statistics and uh there's not a lot of there's not a lot of practical experience for most people, right? right? It's not something that you you get to do in day to day life. Uh, there's an interesting. No, I mean the biggest. 
biggest thing I see with my students is confusing correlation for causation. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and certainly that's, I think, reflected in a lot of decisions that we see being made at very, very high levels of life. Honestly, this is yeah. decisions made in, made on gut instinct and one piece of data right. rather than an actual verifiable <laughs> trend, right? That's a that's a fun one that I would love to chase. Correlation versus causation, right? Because that's a yeah. that's a classic internet trope now, right? Is oh, yeah. oh that's just correlation. That's not causation. Yeah. Can you define those two, and then we can chase where they where you cross from one to the other? Sure, sure. I mean, correlation is just you got two variables that are moving in the same direction, right? right. So causation, one variable affects causes the other one, mm-hmm. right? So if you were to look at a graph of U.S. GDP and line it up next to sales of women's shoes in Mexico, I've actually done this in one of my classes, <laughs> they map almost perfectly one-to-one again. So there's like a 95% uh-huh. correlation between the two. But nobody <laughs> would say that sales of women's shoes in Mexico are causing GDP. And so the, the trick is right. how do you actually disentangle those two? I mean, it turns out that both of them just happen to be moving up and down at the same time because of other factors, Right, right. And so really the key is just trying to identify all of the other factors that could be there that could be affecting these other variables that we actually care about, right? So how do you, so this one actually, this comes up, it's an interesting concept, especially uh, in uh, more modern like machine learning and AI systems, right? Because you have to, uh, a lot of those systems, especially if you don't know what you're doing with them, like I I tend to be when I use them for things very simplistically, you can just throw a lot of stuff at them. And they might decide, oh, well, over the period that you're trying to model, women's shoes was the best thing to use. So it'll grab that data point and use it. And so what do you do uh, like academically or professionally to actually isolate and discover what is the causal, especially when you have observational data? Especially with a lot of, you know, when you're trying to just form a prediction, you actually don't care about causation if you're just trying to predict something, right? So just feed as much data into the algorithm as possible, get an outcome. That's what you care about. Now, if you want to know the mechanism that actually generated that result, that's where you really need to worry about causation, right? Yeah. Now, in an ideal world, you'd have a treatment group and a control group that are randomly selected into, and then you'd give the treatment. And if you have a difference between the groups afterwards, then you'd actually be able to identify some causal effect that's there, right? Uh, So generally, we can't run experiments Mm -hmm. on people's lives. I mean, you can, but it's not the most ethical thing in the world, not that (laughs) yeah we at my other job we've been working with harvard law to try to put together a randomized controlled trial for a type of uh legal uh technology basically um right it's a really interesting thing to try to it's like because you have to find that place you're like okay it comes in here and it's split and now we have this you know trial structure and here's the thing out the other it's 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 interesting to try to, it's, uh, like they're looking for data, right? And so it used to be about like course outcomes, uh, case outcomes, and they're starting to back away right. to, yeah. well, maybe that's not the metric because the part where the case eventually is decided is messed up also. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, in economists, we, we always look for what's called a natural experiment. So mm-hmm. some shock happens that sort of creates a treatment and control. And then we can look for an outcome based off of that sort of shock that happens. And as long as the shock is in fact a shock and is not caused by, you know, the process we're actually looking at, uh, then it would make sense. So like a, like a natural disaster, for example, could be something that we could say, all right, how does a wildfire that occurs, 
how does that, can we use that to actually understand um, the effect of having, you know, insurance on rebuild rates or something like that, or mm. um, people have tried to look at this with like minimum wage laws, right? So what's the impact of a minimum wage on employment? You can't just like compare the two variables because people are going to move to places that maybe have minimum wage don't. Mm. So for example, there's a famous study that took a look at uh, minimum wage laws being raised in a border town in New Jersey that would bordered Pennsylvania. And so you looked at basically employment on either side of the border where on one side of the border, there was a minimum wage that was higher. On the other side, it was a lower minimum wage. So there you can kind of take a look at these things. Um, other people have looked at what's known as sort of a discontinuity design. So for example, you become eligible for Medicare at 65, but somebody who's like 64 and a half probably has about the same health conditions who somebody who's 65. And so right when they become eligible, you see this huge change in behavior. And so that's identifying a causal effect that's not necessarily related to their health. Or it's fun. That's so. Yeah. So, I mean, there's ways that you can try to mm -hmm. tease these effects out. Uh, but, I mean, that's always sort of the challenge for what we call the, right. the applied that's economy. That's fun. You're, you're kind of treasure so hunting what, for, for useful data. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, always. Yeah. Uh, the... the... Uh, one of the notes I have here is Nobel Prize in economics, which I think is basically like just the idea that as a branch of science, it's, you know, at this level where like you catch headlines about Nobel Prize winning economists, right? And then they have like, who's your favorite Nobel Prize winning <laughs> economist? <laughs> who's your hero, your economic hero? Oh, man. Uh, I, I think I got to go with Gary Becker. Uh, I have no idea what that means. What did he figure out? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he was a prolific University of Chicago economist, uh, wrote on a whole bunch of different things, got some really interesting theories on uh, actually built an economic model of crime. So trying to rationalize why people choose to commit crimes. Uh, they, you know, it was a really, you know, that on top of a whole bunch of other really interesting things that he did. Uh uh, he was very forward thinking, or rather his wife was very forward thinking. And part of their uh, prenuptial agreement was that if they ever won the Nobel Prize, she would get half of the uh, award money. So that's great. Economists <laughs> tend to marry very pragmatic people. But uh, so, but no, I mean, I think he just sort of looks at sort of societal, looked at societal issues uh, and tried to find an explanation that could actually uh, be used to try to predict, to try to explain that sort of behavior. The and then by the time you're winning a Nobel prize, you know, you're, mm -hmm. it's been working for a while. Like that's goes back to what I was saying about the advisor when he comes and says, Oh, here's the thing that has been solving this problem reliably for yeah. 30 years. It's a really interesting notion, right? That cause like stats on the news don't talk about the part of, Hey, we got to this number applying this thing that means all this, it has all this research behind it. We've tested right. it this many times, you know, that's the algorithm that's running, although we might not think of it as, you know, a right. All you hear on the news is yet. economists say, <laughs> right. <laughs> we found a, an economist that says, right. <laughs> right. And I mean, and that's the thing is you'll have five different opinions for five different people. Uh, and it all, you know, the devil is in the right. details. You know, it is, what is your, what are you putting into your model? What kind of assumptions you're making? And so, you know, it doesn't play well in a soundbite, obviously. Uh, because to actually lay out all of the differences between how, you know, you got this budget projection or this forecast, you know, take some time and some nuance. So, 
you know, if you have a goal, you want to say that this particular policy is going to be effective. It's not going to cost that much. Well, you can get a set of statistics from one economist. If you want to show that it's going to cost a lot more, <laughs> you could probably get that projection from another economist. And so the more transparent the process that developed those numbers, uh, the more reliable and believable it is. And so, I mean, that's, you know, the part of the whole peer review process that we, we do in academia and other kind of research that I think sometimes with private sector and government economists, there is a pressure to get these numbers out quickly. And mm. so you miss a little bit of that vetting process. So is, uh, <clears throat> is economic research generally almost always observed data that you get from the world you're are you are you ever really doing really controlled experiments yeah in a couple of fields you do uh development economics is doing some really cool stuff with uh, field trials randomized control trials out in the field so mm -hmm. there's for example been a long debate over is it effective to give people mosquito nets for example uh to prevent against malaria mm -hmm. uh what they found out is when people were given mosquito nets that they didn't necessarily value it as much as if they had bought it. Um, and in fact, people were using mosquito nets not to prevent against mosquitoes, but they were using them as nets to go fishing, uh, which wow. is fine. I mean, somebody decided that's a better use of the net. <laughs> it's industrious. Right, right, actually. right, right. So, you know, this debate, so for example, they can you can do like a randomized control trial where you can give the nets to, you know, let's say one village in Kenya, and then you can sell the nets to another village in Kenya where there's no other observed differences between the two, and you can actually see it. And what I found out is that actually when it's free, people will, you will use it more, even if they don't necessarily value it as much, but they'll still will be used, and malaria rates are lower. Uh, hmm. So you'll see that. You'll have a – there's a branch called experimental economics, which will conduct experiments, you know, basically various economic games that people will play, you know, for prizes and things like that and try to prove their theories there. Uh, so there is an attempt to try to get more experimental data, but, mm -hmm. you know, obviously we're constrained by budgets yeah. and ethics and things like that too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that one is exposed to in day-to-day -day life is, is very grand sure. applications yeah. of economic theory, right? They're not even things that I feel like you can really do a study. It would be challenging exactly. because really what we'd love to be able to see is how somebody makes decisions, not just at a moment in time, but over the course of their lives, Right. And so right. you certainly couldn't, you know, have a treatment and a control subject that you observe over the course of their life. Uh, so the best you can do is try to get some kind of longitudinal data on a wide sample and just control for as many things as you can possibly control for right. to try to tease out, you know, the effects of one thing on another. So where does where does information come from that you use? I mean, obviously, the federal government probably produces boatloads of, of economic data. And I know you can get yeah, like kind of sure. anonymized data from from the IRS and, and different places. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, for instance, that uh, the story you were telling about a border town uh, where yeah. you're looking at uh, unemployment uh, and, and uh, uh, minimum wage on both sides of the border. How does how does that come to be as information? Yeah, I think that one actually was just government data. That was just unemployment rates in that particular location. But yeah, people will do you know surveys that they create themselves. They will pull data a lot now from from private sources. People are doing some really cool stuff, uh, sort of geotagging tweets and hmm. connecting that to certain totally. things. Like you know, how does a particular action influence public opinion, and basing that off of you know people's Twitter feeds right. where where those tweets are sent out from. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's being pulled now in sort of the realm of big data and all that, uh, 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it really, yeah, traditionally it used to be mostly big government data sources and that's still being used. Um, I, I use a lot of census data in my work, uh, but increasingly people are starting to look for different things. So uh, one of my colleagues, for example, does a lot of work on deforestation in Brazil uh, and what's actually driving that. And so he uses satellite imagery data to see you know, where there's actually deforestation. So mm. you can really kind of pull that pull information from wherever you can get it, I guess. Yeah. I assume that's just exploded probably during your yeah. your time as an economist, right? It's probably it sure has, from, yeah. uh, seeing the potential of, of connected devices in the internet and now like really realizing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's great. I mean, having that much more information, but yeah. as you know, with more and more information, there's <laughs> a lot more noise and actually trying to cut through all the clutter to try to find something that's actually meaningful. Right. Right. That relates to one of my favorite things to bring up on the podcast in the space of uh, big data. Uh, We did a project once, uh, Brian (laughs) and I, called the uh, Love Hate Index, where we were trying to pull Google hits, Google. So we were trying to associate search, Mm -hmm. uh, like Google search traffic with how someone felt about a topic. Um, And like just the idea of it, we've always been very fascinated with the the weird notion that within like supermassive statistics you can do these weird things like mm-hmm. track a flu outbreak yeah. around a city and so you're like okay there's a flu outbreak like but and past a point you don't know exactly what it's like okay we so we were trying to be like hey here's how people feel about uh, like the counting crows got us a weird result. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up. I wanted to point uh, out that in this was like a very early attempt to uh, to classify Google search data by like intent of the person's search and quality. Like, did they did they search for love or hate? And uh, the big winner, I believe, was the counting crows scored the highest on the love index of any other thing we looked at. We looked at like Harrison Ford. We looked at at like popular movies. We looked at uh chewbacca. chewbacca famous like the president chewbacca scored <laughs> yeah. yeah all right chewy and the counting crows I think, they go hand in hand i think <laughs> i think once normalized the counting crows what i think what that uh <laughs> what we managed to pull out of that study was the notion that you can have things on the internet that are not hated enough that people will talk shit about them <laughs> but are good enough that people that like them are like Man, Counting Crows makes yeah, me happy yeah, yeah. all well, the time. I think time. you're getting a little bit of an age bias too, because <laughs> who's searching for the Counting Crows these days? Probably. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we're all, we're already. Right. I mean, and I think Adam Durance has gone past like his, uh, <laughs> you know, stage where he was dating, you know, Jennifer Aniston. Now he's just kind of like a big, lovable fat guy now. So. So this leads to an interesting uh, uh, <laughs> question. I think when I think of uh, economics. I immediately think of dollars, mm-hmm. uh, which is not at all always or even necessary in any way for uh, economic it's because the economy, sure. right? Yeah. Brian, what's the economy doing? Right. <laughs> what is what is the economy doing, and what right. do economists think of it <laughs> of, of how the economy is doing? Right, but uh, <laughs> clearly, there's all kinds of other stuff uh, that economic theory yeah. gets applied to, and where it makes sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, dollars is is a big part of what we do, uh, and that just goes back to I mean, the notion of money itself. Nobody actually cares about the actual currency, right? Money is a means to an end, right? Right. And so, but because it is sort of universally acceptable, 
it has become a way to sort of measure economic well-being, right? Because somebody who has more right. money generally has the ability to obtain a higher quality of life. And at the end of the day, that's mm-hmm. actually what we care about is call it happiness, mm-hmm. call it subjective well-being. Uh, but we do th- see a very strong correlation, not a perfect one, but certainly right. a strong correlation between that. And so, uh, and that's just, a, it's a metric that is comparable across a wide range of things that can be used to evaluate policy, that can be used to look at outcomes of, of, of you know, different trends and things like that. And so I think that's, that's not incorrect that that be the, an important thing that you would think about as an economist doing, but at the end of the day, <laughs> it's not the money that we care about, but what it can actually right. get. Right. So is it, is it fair to say that money is kind of the normalized data point that allows you to tie everything else together? Uh, I, there are a lot of people that would argue no with you there. Uh, I think it's okay. probably <laughs> it's as close as we can get to something that is there. But, you know, I mean, okay. it's, it's just that it it is universally accepted, but it's not universally valuable to everybody. Right. And there's this notion right. of what we call sort of diminishing marginal utility of money. Uh, throw a big econ term mm-hmm. out at you. But essentially the idea there is, you know, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, just struggling to get by, you find $100 in the street, that makes your day. That's awesome. If you're Jeff Bezos and you find $100 in the street, you probably don't even pick over, bend over to pick it up, right? Because the marginal impact right. on your happiness is pretty small. So we do need to be a little bit careful mm-hmm. uh, with that uh, in terms of connecting money to these outcomes that we actually care about. Because they're not universally equal for right. everybody but it's as good as we got right now yeah right well it was it was a little bit of a loaded question yeah. so i'm glad you you just slapped me down <laughs> from it because it yeah. uh I, it speaks to a lot of the conversations that uh we're seeing uh people have these days about how uh, i especially in living in a very like liberal yeah. progressive part of the world and of the country uh and being surrounded by people of of that mindset most of the time um there's a lot of conversations about things like hey we need to rethink how a lot of our economic theories have been applied sure. in light of kind of where the world is now and how things are happening uh and for me personally uh, working with Adam specifically on the company that he's working on and exploring um, some of these new technologies that have caused me to like rethink uh, how economic theory is applied to stuff. I've been overwhelmed realizing how much uh, these theories apply to like every single thing that happens all day, right? Not just like big decisions I make or big economic decisions. Like, do I buy this car or that car? Or do I move to this neighborhood or that neighborhood or take this job or that job? But really everything if you if you get down to it right like every exchange of information there's there's economic theory at play um people animals uh i think we we probably apply it to people more because we think we're like making conscious decisions but if you do it statistically across the population then all of a sudden you're kind of diminishing us to to plants making economic decisions out in the wild um i'm probably going too far now with this this analogy but uh it's yeah, becomes such an intensely important space for me and in, in stuff that I've been reading and studying. There's an interesting branch of computer science that strikes me as the interesting overlap of some of this stuff, yeah. which is uh, understandability. Like we're starting mm-hmm. to have a problem now where uh, these algorithms are pot are like capable of spitting out a statistical analysis of what should happen in this situation. Like, hey, here's here's our you know, confidence score that X right. 
is the case about this person or whatever. Um, and we're using them in a way where it's like, we, we talked about it in our AI episodes. At some level, it ends up being this black box yeah. where we kind of don't know what's happening in it because it's writing its own mm -hmm. code, which is a really interesting thing. And so now they're having this debate of, you know, okay, well, how do we reintroduce the ability for us to understand right. what's happening in there? It's so weird. Right. And then, as a I mean, that goes back to the notion <laughs> of actually having a model where it's not just right. the outcome we care about, but the mechanism that right. generated that. Which yeah. is, which is dances on a pretty philosophical discussion though, right? Because you can't have an outcome without an input and you can't, yeah. there's, there's a, there's kind of a question sometimes of why do we care? Right. Cause the, let me see if I can formulate this in a way that isn't just nonsense here. So if you're typically when we're building computer systems right now to do things, we're using them to predict stuff or to test stuff. Right. So we're curious what the outcome is. And so in that sense, as long as it's correct, we don't really care what it's doing. Mm -hmm. We're like, we're really curious because we're used to as humans mm -hmm. ourselves, like rationalizing the decisions we're making. Um, but if a computer system's doing the thing we need it to do and it's doing it the way we the way we think it should um which i guess even there i just started to layer like a human judgment on it yeah. <laughs> as opposed to um it just accomplishing something for us i don't know this is a weird it's a weird it's always weird to me when we start to think about well what's actually causing the yeah. thing to happen and my head kind of spirals back to uh, the like Eastern thought of a butterfly mm. flaps its wings and a hurricane hits the East coast yeah. of some other continent, which conceptually and philosophically you're over right, here with the, like, the, the, like water chaos component and everything being hand. connected, which is like a common, <laughs> common piece of what we, what we talk about on here. But <laughs> I'm just seeing you in repose like Jeff Goldblum now. Maybe I caused that earthquake chest. by with that uh, <laughs> that pose I held. So I think one of the interesting things that again is a, it ends up being a blockchain space without chasing a particular rabbit hole is the idea of what happens when you create tools to move this sort of value captured by this nebulous digital thing uh, into use. And you start having, uh, like, it, it ends up clashing with another, just a running conversation that, it, you know, Brian, you oh. talked about before about, uh, like, wealth and inequality, which I think is, like, the first thing that came up when we started uh, talking about this stuff. And I was like, no, no, there's all these other intro things we got to do first. But, I mean, like, <laughs> so let's do it. Wealth, like, what? what's the difference between like uh wealth value productivity like all those kind of things that end up coming up in the in the space of uh i think it came up in we were talking about technology right so uh technology comes along and it allows a farmer to plant 200 more beet plants in the ground so like what was created by the existence of that technology that was that that, that increased yeah no uh, there's there's so much in that analogy uh <laughs> But it's a great one. It it is really great. Yeah, the the question I've been trying to answer for myself, uh, and this has been an interesting pursuit because it's been harder to kind of chase this down than I thought it was going to be. I'm curious, like, why why are there so many nice cars in the world? Right, mm -hmm. a car is a very expensive thing to make, 
And 500 years ago, not only do we not have the technology to make the cars, which I think is part of the conversation, but there just there wasn't enough wealth, I think is the right word, mm-hmm. for us to sustain nice cars for people, right? And I'm saying nice cars is a weird analogy, but just like stuff. We all have we have stuff now in a, at a level that was never available mm-hmm. before. And a few hundred years ago, it was far beyond what a simple farmer, which most people were, uh, had in their homes. And what is that? Mm-hmm. It's such a weird concept because I can rationalize uh, working a job yeah. and getting paid money and buying items and, and the cost of things. But there's mm-hmm. this separate component to it, um, which is talked about a lot. Uh, but the concept of wealth and growing wealth, growing the pie for people, which I think is an important part of conversation in, in the modern world, especially as we talk about uh, like economic policy for governments, how do we grow the pie for the world? And what does that even mean? Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, some of the most important questions, you know, that we're, we're dealing with here. And so, I mean, in answer to your question, why are there so many nice cars right now <laughs> or just cars in general? Right. Yeah. It's, if you go back to when we were all subsistence farmers, right. Or mm-hmm. most of us, I guess, with the exception of a few wealthy landowners, uh, you would grow enough food to feed yourself and your family. And then maybe it was a really good year, you know, where the weather was good. You have a little bit extra, right. And maybe you'd be able to pay a dowry for your child or something like that. The bad year you have to tighten your belts. Right. Mm-hmm. So technology comes around. And if you're able to implement that technology, and that's a big if, if you're able to utilize it, if you're able to get the capital to actually purchase that technology, uh, then now you're actually producing more than you need. And so you've got extra. And so what do you do with that extra? You can exchange it for other things. Um, And so that's where the notion of sort of once your basic needs are met, now you have luxury. And with luxury comes choice, right? And so that's why there's not just one car in the world. There's lots of cars, right? Because people like to have choices that mm-hmm. if somebody is <laughs> has you know just barely enough money to buy a car, they have no choice really, right? They buy the car they can afford. Somebody has a ton of money, well then they're going to shop around a whole bunch of dealers and get the one that they want that adds all right. these sorts of things. So, so basically, variety is a luxury that's been created, enabled by the fact that we do have technology that's out there, right? And so what technology has done is cause people to become more productive. Now, not everybody equally, and this leads down mm-hmm. to a conversation inequality, but as we become more productive, we're able to get more output with the same amount of inputs. Mm-hmm. Then this generates surplus, right? We're producing more than we just need for ourselves. And that extra income above and beyond what we're consuming, what we're demanding, is what turns into wealth, right? And so this surplus that's there, this wealth then gets spent on other things and it circulates around throughout the economy. Uh, And so has technology benefited society? Without a doubt. I mean, if you look at the statistics, just look at life expectancy. Life expectancy has nearly doubled, you know, in just a couple of centuries. Um, And, you know, that's certainly true in, you know, modern industrialized societies, but it's also increased really remarkably uh, and relatively poor countries mm-hmm. as well. I mean, there's still some countries where life expectancy is around 50 years of age, but that's almost entirely driven by child mortality, right? So once we actually take a look at differences in life expectancy at age 15, they're almost negligible, right? Between countries. I mean, there may be a five, 10 year difference there, but wow. most of, you know, the, there have been these remarkable improvements. Yeah, yeah. What I think gets a lot of people is the fact that the increase in living standards has been remarkably uneven, right? So at a cost-country level, uh, 
right now we are probably 100, 200 times better off than uh, we were 200 years ago. Whereas mm-hmm. if you go and you find you know, a poor farmer in the Democratic Republic of Congo, their standard of living is basically exactly the same as it was 200 years ago. So it's not that they're worse off, they're just much worse off relative to mm-hmm. the rest of society. And that is also replicated within a country. So if you look at individuals, you know, the gap between the top and the bottom has really grown exponentially. And that's also driven largely by this technological right. change. And that's not a bad thing that skilled workers are becoming a lot more productive. Uh, those with an education, those that can use that technology, those that have the wealth to start off with to acquire that technology. Mm-hmm. Uh those are the ones that are benefiting the most from it. And so their productivity is going up more than anybody else's and therefore their income and therefore their wealth is going up more than anybody else's. So uh, this does beg a question of, is it a level playing field? Is it an uneven playing field? Because, you know, if somebody who's born into a very impoverished mm-hmm. family, but is very intelligent, would be a great user of all this technology, would be very productive if only they had the opportunity, but they never do have that opportunity. Then that's, I think, the efficiency argument for some kind of, if not redistribution of wealth, but redistribution of opportunity. Right. Yeah. Access to technology. Access to technology, access to education, having a financial market that is a level playing field for everybody that, you know, if you've got a great idea that, but you don't have any capital to fund that idea that you can actually go and you can get somebody who has money, but not a good idea to fund that. And that would be a you know, that would be an amicable exchange, a mutually beneficial Which exchange. Which at its core is the, no, is the idea of venture capital. Sure. Essentially. Sure. <laughs> but I mean, if you are, you know, damn near homeless, even with the great idea, you're not getting your foot in the door anywhere. No, you're so, certainly not raising venture capital. No. I mean, <laughs> you don't have an internet connection. You can't even like do like a Kickstarter or, or anything like Unless that. Unless you're a YouTube sensation for something that you do. There you go. That those kind of weird things happen. Yeah. So I mean, you know, things have gotten a little bit more egalitarian in some respects, but you know, there's still a large section of the population that's, that's being shut out of right this sort of technological revolution that has generated so much wealth. Yeah. So there's so to kind of sum up a little bit there, I hope to sum up properly the idea that we have created. The idea that we've made it possible for there to be more stuff for people, more stuff per person in the world is 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 a reality, right? It, yeah. I'm able to have a nice set of dishes and silverware. Uh, it's not silver, but it's it's like nice stuff in my kitchen, whereas no, you would have uh, to make it yourself probably. hundreds of years ago, not every couple had that. Right. And so there's more, the, the ability to have more stuff is yep. available. And that has brought a lot of people's lives in the world. Uh, billions of people uh, live, live at a standard of living that we imagine when we're like browsing the internet and looking at Instagram. Uh, a lot of people haven't recognized those gains, but there really is uh, this incredible ability to lift everybody up without taking away from other people, right? There's not a fixed amount of stuff in the world. Um, and what I'm always, I'm so curious about is what are the, uh, what are some of the economic, uh, concepts or economic principles or, uh, areas of study that, 
answer the question of how do we I'm struggling to ask the right question. Um, Mm -hmm. What do we, what should we do in your opinion to maximize uh, the increase of wealth in the world? Right. Cause I think we get, we get hung up on how do we get more money for individuals? How do I pay you more for your job? How do I increase minimum wage? But that's not actually long-term. I don't think what really makes a difference. If we want to, if we just, if, in a total vacuum, we just increase minimum wage. You can make the argument that that just inflates the costs of everything, right? Because you're not introducing right. more wealth. Um, but if we actively right. put our energy into increasing uh, education, which uh, this is a common theme on our on our podcast, but that that's a form of technology, right? It's it's intellectual technology. Um, or if you introduce new automation techniques, or new software, or new uh, a new form of farming equipment, we create wealth, which then there's just more stuff for people. So what are the principles that help us guide those decisions as opposed to just like moving dollars around? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, I would say the field of development economics is looking at this notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the answer is we don't really know. Uh, we have lots of theories. <laughs> Uh, and you know, my friends at the world bank, the IMF have been working on this for their whole careers, but I think rightfully criticized for trying to have a one size fits all theory, right? Some universal theory that works for everywhere. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is there is not necessarily one perfect answer for all of this, right? So we want to increase people's standard of living, right? You want to maximize the efficiency of the economy such that we are getting the absolute most out of the resources that we have, Right. Because stuff is finite, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, the resources that we have are finite, and increasingly so, uh, given climate change and population growth and everything like that. And as societies right. get richer, I mean, the majority of the world's population still lives in relatively less developed countries. As those people in those countries become wealthier, they are going to mm-hmm. consume more, and as they have the right to do so. Uh, and that's certainly going to put an even larger strain on resources. I mean, mm-hmm. simply going from, you know, eating meat once a week to five days a week is just a remarkable uh, impact that we have on water resources, on land resources. So, I mean, that's that's common, no doubt. Um, but so that really just necessitates that we become as efficient as possible with the resources that we do have, right? Uh, so there's, I'm going to go off on a little tangent. So stop me if I if I am. There's there is a Economist in the 18th century named uh, Thomas Robert Malthus, uh, and this is according to his theories why economics is oftentimes coined the dismal science. Uh, and he was basically arguing against uh, social welfare laws in England at the time. And his basic <laughs> argument was that if you increase the standard of living for the poor, then they're just going to have more people, more kids, and more kids are more miles to feed, and actually they're going to be worse off in the long run. So. His theories have basically been proven incorrect that there's not necessarily a fixed finite carrying capacity for the earth, right? There certainly is a finite carrying capacity, but that target is not necessarily fixed because every time we have a new, you know, the original green revolution, which increased, you know, food productivity, agricultural productivity, you know, that moved the target more as we have more technology, as, you know, we start to develop these different ways of utilizing the resources more efficiently, that certainly enables uh, greater use of those resources. Right. All right. To what extent 
like, so what I always wonder, I, my obsession is with where yeah. the sort of gig economy runs into this stuff. Yeah. And you okay. start having, you know, we always have questions of at what point is deploying a minimum wage somewhere uh, less effective than deploying Uber, where anyone with a smartphone can, you know, yeah. can generate income using utilizing like a resource that they already have if they have a car they've got the resource here's the thing you can do with it to make money yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean i think the majority of economists is certainly not all the majority of economists don't generally think minimum wages are the best way to address what they're trying to get at the root out root problem of which is low income income inequality uh you know because minimum wage is basically a law stating that employers have to pay this wage to people and so that what we tend to find is that when it's set too high, employers are just going to hire fewer workers or they're going to switch away from labor and substitute mm. with capital, right? So McDonald's has more automated touchscreens to order now, right? And so the minimum wage, you know, certainly it's a noble endeavor, but the problem with it is that it may end up hurting the very people it was created to help, right? And so if you have deregulation that allows more Uber drivers or cash rabbits and things like that. Well, there's more opportunities, I guess, for low skill workers to sort of enter into the market. But of course, that in and of itself is not addressing the root cause of the problem. And the root cause of the problem is that why are people earning so little in a city like San Diego or in LA where the cost of living is so high because it's being driven by high income, high wealth at the very top, right? And so there, this gets back to your question of, all right, maybe it's education, right? So we need to increase educational opportunities for everybody. Uh, and that would work, you know, in a relatively industrialized, capital abundant country like the US. In other places where capital is very scarce, education is still important, obviously, but the immediate thing to address is the kind of technology that's being used, hmm. right? So we think of technology uh, as generally being a positive thing, but technology is usually developed to meet the needs of the place where it's developed, right? And so if you think of, you know, automation, for example, that's being done because in a place like the US, labor is relatively scarce and expensive, capital is cheap. And so the more you can automate, the more efficient you're going to be. In a place like Bangladesh, capital is very scarce, labor is abundant and cheap. And so Bangladesh would rather come up with technologies that replaces capital with labor, right? And most efficiently uses that labor, but nobody's developing technology for Bangladesh because it's not lucrative to do so, right? So all the technology that's being developed is to address, for lack of a better word, first world problems. Uh, but the, you know, the developing countries need to develop the technology or have developed the technology that would address their unique set of resources, which is generally lots of unskilled labor, right? And so China's been pretty effective at doing this. If you think about how an iPhone's assembled, you could assemble an iPhone completely through an automated process, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, you have a robot that's building everything. That's not how it's done. It's very labor intensive. Why? Because <laughs> China has an abundance of cheap labor. And so that's an example of, you know, utilizing technology in a way that is most suited to the situation that it's there. And so this gets at sort of cross-country inequality, and then it gets at within countries in the U.S., for example, the technology we use, very capital intensive, utilize a lot of skilled labor. If you're not skilled, if you don't have any wealth to own capital, 
then you're being mm -hmm. left behind by this. And so the, what's the policy that would be effective is figuring out a way to get those skills to the people that mm -hmm. are born into a situation where they don't have the opportunities to get those. And so, you know, when we talk about wealth inequality, we talk about income inequality, you know, it's in many cases, education inequality uh, too, really is the root cause of a lot of this. And so, I mean, just think about the way that our schools are funded in the U.S. based off of property taxes. So if you're living in a neighborhood where, you know, there's terrible housing values, your school has no money. Right. So right there, you're, you're already yeah, that's a difficult correlation. I've always been aware of it, but I don't know what to do about yeah. it other than be like, well, the schools will be good here because I'm paying all this tax. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> it changed the way that you fund schools. <laughs> but I'm not at a layer a level where that tax is going to break me. No, no, so it's not. You know, it's 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 in in essence privilege right. at some level of this system. Of that's, yeah. You know, difficult to reconcile. There's an interesting aspect of it with in the space of <laughs> developing countries and technology that I always like to talk about, which is like the kind of the, the, the notion of the leaf leapfrog, uh, not really problem, but you know, the idea that like there are drone companies really effectively delivering like blood transfusions, you know, in a really unique way. That's not really doable here because of regulation and they leapfrogged mm -hmm. having to have a truck on yeah. roads. So, they don't need the roads because they can just drone things back and forth in the sky. And so these, so, so they're able to like deliver things to hospitals promptly, yeah. even though there are still just dirt roads everywhere. It's an interesting uh, sort of phenomenon that's uh, comes up frequently in sort of technologist conversations, I think. Yeah. The, another, another really interesting example is, is cell phones, right? The cell towers mm -hmm. versus yeah. running landline phone technology uh and that one touches on all kinds of other interesting stuff is happening around that with with economics and, and money oh, yeah. right um yeah i think like uh there's a famous example in, in kenya where mobile banking actually developed much faster in kenya than it did in the u.s because you know we weren't stuck they weren't stuck necessarily with this sort of traditional brick and mortar banking system that was there right. uh, yeah no, no it's there's definitely a lot of inertia in developing and implementing new technologies and if you have an old existing mm -hmm. technology that's there, it can sometimes be difficult to replace because not only is it costly, but there's often a constituency that is opposed to changing. Whereas if you're starting in a country where that constituency never existed, then there are opportunities really to develop these things in a, in a more efficient way. Yeah. Right. So I've got a I've got a question that's it's kind of very specific, but it's it's exactly on this this line of topic we're talking about. Uh, so one of the areas I've been very interested in recently and, and doing some work in is with uh, climate science and climate technology and thinking through how the proliferation of new technologies will affect things. And one of the very interesting spaces where I don't have enough conceptual hmm. understanding of economics to really think through all of the ways that that stuff can be done here is the idea of more distributed uh, electrical generation yeah. and the idea of, uh, technologies like, uh, solar panels and wind farms and, uh, even, even other mechanical stuff like getting uh, hydroelectric power, uh, they're all of a sudden, instead of you needing to extract a energy rich resource from very explicit limited places around the world where they're increasingly more expensive to get to, uh, the average person can't go get oil ever again, right? We've gotten all of the easy to get oil for the most part, but 
uh, and then have to chuck that into like these very heavy centralized uh, systems owned by big companies, I can buy a bunch of solar panels. And that's that's still a luxury. That's still very expensive for me to do. Um, but on a very small scale, if you're thinking about a, uh, a farmer in Kenya, uh, I've seen some articles. I don't know how prolific this is, but some some places where uh, people have purchased a few solar panels and they can now resell electricity to their neighbors to charge simple things like their cell phones, which is one of the limited electronic technologies that's in the area. I'm curious from your perspective, if you have any thoughts on this, kind of how uh, how how that might affect stuff in the future as these technologies become more accessible and and proliferate more. And in the U.S. specifically, I'm I'm thinking of I was in Iowa recently and saw how many uh, wind turbines there are all over the farms, right? And and I realized after my trip that Iowa's uh, per capita has the highest percentage of wind generated energy in the country uh, or, or is close uh, by state. But how is that going to affect economics? There's this, this natural resource now that's kind of a couple of them that are kind of everywhere. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and so on one hand, I'm going to be the, the two-handed economist here. Uh, anything that creates more competition generally is efficiency improving, right? We tend to think that if mm -hmm. you now have more of a decentralized power grid, right, and you're not forced to just buy all your power from one source, then that's a positive thing. If there's more competition, it'll bring rates down. It'll bring efficiency improvements as there's more competition. Uh, if I can put solar panels on my roof, then you know SDG and E is going to have to offer me something in order for me to want to stay with them, right? Uh, so that by itself mm -hmm. sounds like a good thing, right? And that's sort of opening up opportunities, as you were saying, that you know if you mm -hmm. have you know some entrepreneurship uh, opportunities are there. Right. If you have like a just put a, a wind turbine on your farm or a solar panel that's there, then that, that can be a great thing. Uh, traditional economic theory, though, basically says that power generation and here we're thinking traditional like coal power plants and things like that follows what's called a natural monopoly. So a natural monopoly basically is to get technical. It has a decreasing long run average cost curve. But what that basically means is that one gigantic factory can produce output more efficiently than 100 small ones. Right. And so you see this argument being made for power generation, for banks sometimes, uh, for airlines, things where there's sort of redundant fixed costs. Uh, so if we're going away from one large sort of you know power generation in each area to a bunch of smaller decentralized ones, maybe there's an efficiency loss. Now, that being said, it's not necessarily clear mm -hmm. that a natural monopoly exists for some of the technologies you're talking about. Is there a natural monopoly in solar power? Is there in wind turbines? That's a little bit less certain. And that's still something that's open for debate. So mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like sort of the efficiency argument, it's hard to say uh, what's actually the more efficient model. Uh, but, you know, certainly mm -hmm. the fact that we're switching to more renewable resources is, is a necessary thing. As you just rightly pointed out, I mean, there's still a lot of oil in, in, in the world, but it's really expensive. To get to. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences you know, for example, climate change will likely open up a lot of Arctic oil. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. and Russia both have invested a lot into looking at this. But the marginal extraction cost of this is about $90 a barrel. Um, and at current oil prices, it's, it's just not even worth mm -hmm, extracting right. at the moment. So that kind of that, the oil that's, that's still yet to be tapped 
a lot of it is just, it's not efficient to get to given current prices and it won't mm-hmm. be until mm-hmm. you know we get to some crazy peak oil scenario which maybe never comes because we switch to alternative energy sources so, yeah hmm. but uh long-winded explanation to it important but simple question <laughs> well it's long-winded because the oh, rabbit yeah. holes are all deep and delightfully dark uh unfortunately we're out of time for today thanks for thanks for coming by oh, well. and, like I, does that answer your question from the preamble about how we would have had a six-hour conversation with the other economist <laughs> we mentioned <laughs> oh yeah no no no, no, no but sure. uh yeah thanks for joining I mean, us and thanks over. to uh, everyone that uh, supports us over at support.zengineeringpodcast.com. Uh, if you want to throw in as little as a buck a month over there, I already gave you the address. But uh, thanks for hanging out for another one. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks for taking time out of your Saturday morning. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great. This is Zen Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. That's it. Take it easy, everybody. Cool. All right.